is a part two of our crossover with Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. Welcome to Shakespeare in the Village. But this is part two, so go ahead and listen to Michael, Ethan, Lydia, and Risha. That one's me. And we talk about Beatrice a lot in this one, but also other characters because they're important too. So I hope you enjoy. So uh, you uh, talking about Beatrice, which I, I it's hard... Anybody feel free to contradict me. Does does hmm. anybody have a character that's that's more <laughs> favorite than Beatrice in this play? No, absolutely not. Okay. No, they'd be wrong. <laughs> they'd, be wrong. <laughs> they'd be absolutely wrong. So now I this this is a, a thought that um I wanted to to bounce around because I read it and I mentioned it um earlier in the Shakespeare in the Village podcast about uh Harold Bloom's take on this play. Uh, and mm. talking about Beatrice as being exactly what you said, the smartest person in every room that she's in, that uh, that she is, uh, she rises to the height of one of Shakespeare's best characters, and he almost t- makes her the, the uh, female Falstaff, but without the buffoonery. And that's h- kind of how uh, Harold Bloom takes it. And then on the contrary side of that, talking about Benedict as Beatrice's foil. Uh, sort of, and he doesn't think Benedict is quite a match for Beatrice. Not not necessarily a romantic mm. match, but even a match in wit. That he stumbles behind her, uh, and even uh, in Shakespeare's craft, he doesn't rise to where where he thinks Benedict should be. I wonder what what everyone's take is on that. Isn't that kind of his draw to her, though? Go on. Because she is wittier and and has so many more like virtues and things about her that he even has that huge long speech where he talks about how no woman can measure up. Mm. And so she had to be for sure, even like not even matched. She had to be better for him to really want her. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking when he describes like the perfect woman who has all of these virtues in one woman, you're thinking that for Benedict, that is Beatrice. Yeah, I think so. I think something that gets lost a lot when people talk about this play, because it's rarely mentioned, though it's always in the background, is the fact that Benedict is a soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the beginning, obviously. That's that's his character introduction. They're, they're coming back from war, essentially. And I, I, I uh, may be influenced by this because uh, my wife, hearing that I was going to be discussing Much Ado reminded her that she wanted to find the um David Tennant and Catherine Tate version which <laughs> was a was a there's a recording of it available like a like a streaming recording but it was a, I think on the West End um in London and so she was watching it earlier today as we as we record this and specifically some of the scenes between them I think Tennant really leans into the idea that like Benedict is almost not exactly a jock, but like the the seventeenth century equivalent of like that stereotype is mm-hmm. like his socially culturally his job is not necessarily to be witty and educated in the way that mm-hmm. someone like Beatrice's job is. His job is to take action and to you know it's it's much more about like the physicality. So he's playing in her sort of in her arena or whatever when he tries to match wits with her. I think you can see that even later in the play when the the stuff with Hero kind of comes to a head and Beatrice appeals to that about him because she basically I can't I I don't remember the 
actual quote, but she basically is like, Benedict, if you actually love me, like, go take up your sword and fight on my my cousin's behalf. I think here is her cousin. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, that's not only where sort of Shakespeare places him, but where Beatrice places him. And I think some of the tension about the match from her perspective is a, is sort of about, like, is he actually witty enough for me versus, like, is that actually, do I actually need someone who is? Like, if she's mm-hmm. if she's got wit locked down, in other words, like, maybe she needs someone who's who has other strengths. Um, so I think, like, Bloom kind of overstates his case a little bit. Like, I don't completely disagree with him, but I think he, because he has this thesis where he sees, you know, all of these... I mean, he sees Shakespeare's women as much smarter than they should be. Like, Juliet is way smarter than she should be. Rosalind is way smarter than she should be from As You Like It. Even the girls from uh, Midsummer Night's Dream are very smart. Um, Ophelia is very smart. Uh, So Shakespeare wrote all these brilliant women, and, and Bloom has this thesis that Shakespeare cast their male foils as more or less idiots. So like he thinks Romeo is a dumb jock and well. <laughs> which is that one's fair, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think when he gets to, to Benedict, it struck me a little bit that like there's something to it, but he's maybe overstating it when he tries to make Benedict sort of as as much of a a dumb jock as Romeo. But I think there is a paradigm there that's that that uh, Shakespeare is definitely playing with where and I, I, I agree on the face of it. I agree with the thesis statement that Beatrice is clearly smarter and wittier than Benedict. Mm-hmm. For sure. But like, yeah. the, I guess the fact that she starts out by saying, I need someone who can match, match wits with me, because she says that in Act 1, mm-hmm. um, I'm suspicious that it's actually true. Because where, <laughs> where a Shakespeare character starts in Act 1 is usually a starting place that they change from or learn better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially, oh, Shakespeare, do be loving to, <laughs> to have a character think they know what they want and yeah. then say, no, <laughs> actually, right. no. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you're, so how does, how does Beatrice then learn that that's not what she wants? Or does she? I think it's like by the threat of having it taken away from her, mm. which is sort of that classic romantic comedy trope of like, you have to either almost lose the person or think you have lost them before you actually appreciate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's funny. I was actually thinking about this on my drive here, how intelligent Beatrice is and who would be a good match for her. Because, of course, I'd be... <laughs> <laughs> who of your friends? Or who are you, look, in literature? Look, I love to be a matchmaker. matchmaker. <laughs> As usual... I want everyone to find love, and I want to arrange it. (laughs) I mean, that's what a matchmaker is. Literally, yes. It's me. Hello. Um, I'm the problem. Hello, it's me. I am the problem. Yeah, that's that's what T-Swift has to say about that. (laughs) No, but, but what Beatrice needs is not someone who's just as smart as her, because like you said, it's, she's got that unlocked. She needs someone who's a very good companion, right? What she lacks in life is companionship, especially once Hero is paired off. Mm-hmm. And in the text, it's really demonstrated that Benedict is, he's a homie, <laughs> right? Like everyone around him, all of his army buddies love him 
because he's just like a good dude. He's a good bud. And that's what Beatrice really needs. She just needs a good bud for life. (laughs) Well, I think she has probably a lot of abandonment issues. Like you mm. said, oh. even like with Hero too, you know, she doesn't have her parents. And right, she's an she, orphan. One of the first things you hear her say about Benedict too is that he wears his faith, but as the fashion of his hat, it ever changes with the next block. So she's saying he's super fickle. Mm. Yeah, know? he hops from friend to friend. Yeah. 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 Well, and there's some implication, I think, that they kind of had a dalliance before and he yep. kind of... Yeah. Mm-hmm. dipped and yeah. I, you don't get too much of of that other than sort of just like offhand references but it does make you wonder what the prequel story would be right. about their like first entanglement what that whatever that would uh entail yeah it's and i've seen productions where they try to try to fit something of that in there um the joss whedon um yeah version has just like a silent scene of uh I, I think it's in in the very beginning of the play too so it's it's just set up as the foundational prequel to the whole play where they spend the night together and then benedict walks out uh mm. while he thinks beatrice is sleeping but then you see she's awake and like notices him leaving which is i, I i'm wondering what uh what he's exactly what joss whedon is exactly saying by by making that choice in that play, but it seems to be kind of the same same idea, this abandonment idea that like he felt he couldn't commit and so he just left and that was hard on her. Yeah. In some way. Essentially what Whedon has it be is just sort of the the like one night stand kind of thing where mm-hmm. it's like you have a one night stand and then he tries to do the the sneak away walk of shame trope right. or whatever, and of course because she's smart, like he doesn't right. get away with it, which I think is a valid, is one valid way to read that backstory. Like you could sort sure. of infer something like that happening, um, but you could infer any number of things. I think you could infer that maybe they were, maybe there was more of like a, a romantic situation, and then if he's going off to war, mm. you know, maybe he did the thing where he was like, I don't want you to like. I don't want to like get engaged and then have you have a fiance die on the battlefield. I don't want to put you through that or any number of things like that. And you know he could have broken it off for much less um, uh, prurient reasons. Is that the word I want? I don't know. No, I don't. <laughs> try again. No, I, I I know I know I was wrong, but I don't want to try again. <laughs> less frat boy reasons. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you got it That's, in one. How yeah, you... that was it. Hey, that was it. <laughs> Because they both end up not telling each other that they're in love with each other and Mm. hiding it. And so hers, I feel like, is the abandonment issues. And I think his might be the whole thing where he knows he's not as smart as her. Mm. I think Mm. that might be a big part of it where he's like, she doesn't want me because I can't match wit. I don't know. It's a bit of an insecurity there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the whole thing, but. I've always wished, because obviously his monologue that concludes with one of the best lines in all of Shakespeare, the world must be peopled, you know, he, <laughs> he kind of lays out not only his own interiority, but the change, like he goes through the ultimate plot point change through the course of that monologue, starting out by saying, not ever gonna, gonna marry anyone. I agree with you that like, 
I, I think that when he's saying no woman is perfect, he, he's just describing Beatrice. Mm. Um, mm. And, and then maybe he realizes that, you know, char- Shakespeare's characters have this way of like talking to themselves and then changing through hearing their own thoughts voiced out loud. But I always have wished that we had the same monologue, but for Beatrice, or yeah, for Beatrice, mm. because mm. you get it with Benedict. So in a sense, you really get exactly what the change is and what he goes through but you don't for beatrice her her change is much more subtle and i think maybe happens more like off stage so you see the results and you can kind of infer them but like you don't have quite as provable you know provably laid out exactly where her change comes from which i think is an interesting choice i don't know how but it feels like it probably ties back into the uh the whole abandonment thing, like maybe Beatrice is so secretive that she doesn't even share her thoughts with the audience or with herself, mm. that maybe it's it's much more completely interior. I do think it's interesting, too, when you think about, again, Benedict being a soldier and you think about what he says to himself to convince himself that he is not even necessarily good enough for Beatrice, but that he should be with Beatrice, because he makes this shift to where he talks, he's talking about duty all of a sudden. The world must be people. Like, mm-hmm. this, this isn't about him being worthy of someone. It's about him seeing a chance to fulfill a duty like a soldier does and then does. And, of course, that's all nonsense. Like, that's all just him fooling oh, yeah. himself to sort of <laughs> trick himself into letting himself do what he wants. Right, but he's already decided on that course of action. He needs to validate it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's interesting thinking about Beatrice and how she doesn't have that that dialogue beforehand and a really short dialogue after she overhears, or a monologue after she hears Hero and Ursula. You have a thought. I have a thought, but it doesn't relate to that. It relates to a word you said, so I will get to it after. All right. All right. Um, We'll we'll sit there then. But I, I, you know, and thinking about this too, and and just in, in... general about Beatrice's character, which rightly so, she's taking up a lot of what we're talking about here. But I I wonder how much of her character is rooted in a need for control, uh, kind of a psychological need to to control the outcome, to control what goes on with people. Even when she, you know, supports the marriage for a hero, she kind of teases her a little bit about it, but ultimately she thinks this is good. But then uh, she's got this whole thing uh, with Benedict where she tells him, kill Claudio, you know, right? She, she's turning him into the sword again. And she, she's directing that sword and, and wishing that she could fulfill that role, but she wants Benedict to do that. And he says he's willing, ultimately. He resists it, but he's ultimately willing. But he doesn't kill Claudio, uh, even though he took an oath to do so and, and swore to Beatrice that he would, <laughs> that, uh, that he would kill Claudio. But there's, he finds a way around it, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so Beatrice doesn't get that that control in it. And I wonder how much of that has to do with what makes them a good match. That she needs this control and Benedict finds a way to take away her control, but also give her a good outcome. Hmm. I love when the man I love promises to do a murder and then doesn't for me. I mean, to quote another play, all's well that ends well. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. What well, what did your what was your thought on this, Risha? 
what word I said. Oh, the word. It doesn't have to do with anything you oh. said other than the one word. What's the <laughs> You said short. Oh, yes. And Shakespeare has a thing with poking fun at short women. Yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, that's, that's correct. He did it to Hero. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thinking about Hermia. Uh-huh. Yeah, Hermia. Yep. Mm. I myself am 4'11 and 7'8s, so. <laughs> and every, every one of those eights is important. Yes. <laughs> so you, you said the word short, and I just got like. Ugh. You got triggered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there there is a theory because a lot of Shakespeare's plays have two, like, female characters. So you got Hamlet with um, the Queen and Ophelia. You have Hermia and Helena in Midsummer, um, and often, especially as uh, Shakespeare gets older, like the two female characters are very intricate and very complex. So there's a theory. Uh, because despite what I implied earlier about medieval Brian, like we actually know very little about Shakespeare's <laughs> um, biography and, and his his life and the people he worked with. We know some things, but not a ton, especially about him directly. So extrapolating backwards, there's a theory that there were two members of his troupe who were really good at playing women. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, the suspicion then would be that one of them was particularly short. So he was writing these short jokes... Specifically to tease an individual person. Uh, right. Which could be better or could be worse, depending on your, your perspective. <laughs> no, it, that really aligns with my experience in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> you're writing a part for someone, you're absolutely roasting the actor. Yeah. 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 Oh, yes. You have to. I mean, yeah. Feels right. It's, it does. It does. It's <laughs> right in. <laughs> And with that, we are at the end of part two. Thanks, you guys, for listening. There is still another part coming up, so tune in next week for the next one. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.